All right, thank you. Paul would like to meet with his fan club right uh, over on this side, right after the uh, service. He'll be signing autographs here. If you are between ages 18 and 25 and single, you're invited to a reception out this door and right across the hall as soon as this service is over. I hope to see you there. Open your Bible, please, to Colossians chapter 1 as we continue our study, beginning with verse 15. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the unique figure in the annals of human history. He is truly the incomparable Christ. There is none like him. And so beware of any professor or preacher, any religion or belief that impugns the character, the message, or the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can expect that there will be those who will do such. John the Apostle said, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And the Apostle Paul joins by saying, Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. We can expect that there will be those who, for their own peculiar reasons, will seek to detract people from Jesus Christ. We are to turn away from them. One of the key tests of a cult is what they teach about Jesus Christ. It is a mark of apostasy when a teacher or denomination deny what the Word of God says regarding Jesus Christ, that he is God and man in one person. Paul picks up the theme of Jesus Christ as he concludes his opening paragraph relating his prayer life to us. You notice that in verse 13 he mentions the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And now beginning in verse 15, he talks more about the Son of God. He gives an extended paragraph, exalting the person of Christ and showing his distinctiveness. Apparently the false teaching that was already attacking the Colossian church was subverting this crucial doctrine of the person of Christ. What Paul writes here is so poetic, so powerful, that many think it probably was a part of an early hymn sung by the church. What he says in this paragraph, beginning in verse 15, is absolutely breathtaking in its scope. First he tells us about the relation of Jesus Christ 
to the creation in the text we've read this morning. And then the relation of Christ to the church, verse 18. And finally, the relation of Jesus Christ to salvation, verses 19 through 22. The Colossian heresy involved the worship of angels. And apparently they included Jesus as one of the angels, or at least as one of the emanations descending from God. I'll talk more about that in the future. But my point this morning is that Jesus Christ is not only set apart from created things, but he is, in fact, the sovereign of those things. Now, I want you to notice how Paul describes Christ's relation to the creation. I'm going to begin with the second part of verse 15, where it says that he is above creation. He describes him as the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does the term firstborn mean? That is a crucial question. Sometimes the word firstborn means priority in time. The one who is the firstborn in the family and after whom there are others who come later. Other times the word firstborn means supremacy in rank. This was a term that was used in the Old Testament of people who had the position of receiving a double inheritance. That person was not always the first one born in time. Who was born first, Jacob or Esau? Esau. But Jacob is the one who became the firstborn, who had the supreme rank over his brother because of what happened in that narrative. And so the term can mean priority in time or supremacy in rank. You say, why is that important? Well, if it means here that it is that Jesus Christ is prior in time, it means that he is a part of creation. If firstborn here means that he is the first thing created, then he's a part of the creation, not above it. That, of course, is the position that Jehovah's Witnesses teach in their heresy. Now, they didn't originate it. It began in Arianism many, many centuries ago, but they're the contemporary expression of that false teaching. Listen to what they say. Before our Lord came into the world, this is Jehovah's Witness now, before our Lord came into the world, he was a created angel and none other than the archangel Michael. They go on to say, Jesus was not a combination of two natures, human and divine. When he was in the flesh, he was a perfect human being, nothing more. That's a lie. And when they teach that lie, they go to this verse and take the term firstborn and twist it to mean that he is prior in time. Is that what the verse means? Is that what the word means? You have to look at the context to decide which way to take firstborn. It is very clear in the context of verse 15 
that he's talking about being supreme in rank. For later he's going to tell us that he, Jesus Christ, is before all things. That is, he could not be one of the created things because he existed before them. And so we understand that in this context, firstborn means he is supreme above all in creation. Now in verse 18, we see the term firstborn again. And we'll talk about this the next time we're together. But there, firstborn has the other meaning. It means the first, the one who has the prior priority in time, as we will see then. But in verse 15, it means he is supreme in his rank above all. The Mormons likewise attack this doctrine about Jesus Christ. One of their adages is, as we are, God once was. Did you get that? As God is, we can be. The Mormons didn't create that statement. The devil did in Genesis chapter 3. Mormons believe that there are countless gods, though only three of them relate to us. The Mormon trinity are perfected men. Listen to me. The Mormon trinity are perfected men made of flesh and bones who were once exactly like us. The, Mormon teach, the Mormons teach that the Father is a man who has now become God. The Son is a man who has now become God. That the Holy Ghost was a man who has now become God. They also teach that Jesus and Satan are brothers. That they are their spirit children, procreated by God the Father and his wife or wives. This is perverted doctrine. What the Word of God clearly says is that Jesus Christ is the firstborn above creation. He is not a part of creation. He is over it. Now we go on to the next verse, where we see not only is he above creation, but Jesus Christ is the originator of creation. Verse 16 has three prepositional phrases. Do you know what those are? Remember your grammar lessons? Three prepositional phrases. One of them is in verse is the first part of verse 16, for by him all things were created. Literally it says in him all things were created. And at the end of the verse it says all things have been created by him and for him or literally it says unto him. Each of those prepositions is significant. When we think about Jesus Christ being the originator of creation, what it means is that everything was made in him. He is the sphere of creation. What that means is that all realms and dimensions of the universe are within his creative activity. There's nothing outside of it. All of it is within his activity. He made it. The heavens, the earth. Things that are visible. Things that are invisible. Such as, and he names, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. These are names for rankings of angels. 
We'll meet it again in the book of Colossians because it was again related to the Colossian heresy and the worship of angels. So what he is clearly saying here is that Jesus Christ created the angels. He's not one of them. Everything is within his sphere of control. Not only that, but it says everything was made by him. That means he's the agent of creation. He is the cause of it, the mediating cause of it. John says, through him all things were made. The writer of Hebrews says, through the Son also the Father made the worlds. Literally says the Father made the ages. That means all time, space, and matter. That's all included in that Greek thought. All of it was made by Jesus Christ. Time, space, and matter. He is the mediating cause of it all. Thirdly, all things were made unto him or for him. That means that Christ is the possessor of it. He's the judge of all of creation. Dr. Curtis Vaughn says he is the end for which all things exist, the goal toward whom all things were intended to move. The Bishop of Durham, the godly and scholarly Hanley Mool wrote, all things are meant to serve his will, to contribute to his glory. Their whole being, willing or unwilling, moves to him, whether as his blissful servants, they shall be as his, as it were, his, his throne, or as his stricken enemies, his footstool. So the point is that everything has been made for Jesus Christ. And everything that has been made will one day come to his throne and give account. Jesus Christ is the originator of everything. Everything. We live in a vast universe whose dimensions cannot be told or measured by men. Let's suppose that we could get into the Starship Enterprise and... Uh, Captain Kirk or one of the first officers of the ship would say to us, well, how fast do you want to go? Well, I don't know about you, but Mach 1's fine with me. You know, let's, let's get to the speed of, not Mach 1, what do they call it? Warp 1. Warp 1. The speed of light. Do you know if we could get into a spaceship and go at the speed of light, we would go around the world seven times in one second. Just, and we've been around the world seven times. Now let's suppose we're going to get a little bit um, reckless, and we say, hey, let's, let's branch out a bit. Let's go to the moon. We can sit back and relax, but before you could get into the chair, you'd be at the moon. Because in 1.7 seconds, you're there at the speed of light. Now let's suppose you really have wanderlust, and you say uh, let's get out of the Milky Way. That's our galaxy. Let's go to the next galaxy. Did you know that the Andromeda galaxy, the next galaxy to the Milky Way in which we live, is visible to the naked eye? It's the only one. 
You can see it in the sky just as a, almost a blur. You can't look at it and see it because the light hits your retina at the very back and you're blind at that very spot. So you have to look just to the side and you can see the blur of the Andromeda galaxy. So we're going to go to the Andromeda galaxy at warp one, the speed of light. Now you can sit down in your chair and relax. How long do you think it's going to take at the speed of light to get to Andromeda Galaxy? Five seconds? Any other guess? Five years? Getting closer. The actual time is 2.4 million years to get to the nearest galaxy. And that is but one of a billion galaxies in the universe. Now do we begin to understand how vast this creation is? And when the Apostle Paul says it was all made by Jesus Christ, that is some claim. Not only is he the originator of creation, but Paul goes on to say in verse 17 that he is before creation. And he himself... Paul has a way of writing this that means he alone and uniquely is before all things. In physics, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let me talk first about being before all things. This is a definitive statement of priority that says when the creation was made, Jesus Christ already existed. When the beginning took place, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, when that happened, all that that entails, Jesus Christ already was. It is a statement of his pre-existence. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. So what this sentence means, he is before all things, is that Jesus Christ uniquely possesses an immutable existence. That he does not change. And as the writer of Hebrews says, yesterday, today, forever. He's the same. He created time. He existed before time. When time ceases, as we now measure it, he will still be the same. He is eternal. But now in the last part of verse 17, I was getting to the physics course. It says, all things in him hold together. In physics, the force by which molecules are held together is called cohesion. It says here that Jesus Christ is the glue that holds everything together. Warren Wiersbe writes about a guide who took some people through an atomic laboratory and explained how all matter was composed of rapidly moving electric particles. The tourists studied the models of molecules and were amazed to learn that matter is made up mostly of space. During the question and answer period that came after the tour, one of the visitors asked, if this is the way matter works, what holds it all together? 
And the guide very honestly said, we don't know. Do you know that you understand more than most physics professors? Because you understand, if you believe the Bible, what holds the atom together. It is the power of Jesus Christ. He is the cohesion of all of creation. Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds all things by the word of his power. Now there's one final statement I want to look at, and we jumped over it at the beginning. But it's the fifth expression of Jesus Christ's relation to the creation. And it says in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, which means that He, the Creator, the one who is above creation and who is the originator of creation, the one who is before creation, the one who holds creation together, that Creator came into his creation. Now the Son has always been the perfect expression of deity. But in the incarnation, in a very special way, he came into the world of fallen humanity to express to us what God is like. John says it this way in the prologue of his gospel. No man has seen God at any time. Now you go to the Old Testament, you see God accommodating himself to man and revealing himself in certain ways. But what John is saying is that no one has ever seen the essence of deity. But he goes on to say, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father he has explained him. He says that the Son has led the Father into view for us so that we might see what God is like. He has narrated God to our understanding. He is the image, writes Paul, of the invisible God. The word here is icon in the Greek. We use the word in English. If you go to an Orthodox church, you may see on the walls or in the front of the church icons. These are often very valuable and very old. The icons are images of holy people, of the saints of the church. That word icon is used here of Jesus Christ, and it means one who represents God and who manifests God to his creatures. It means that he is the perfect representation. He is the mirror reflection to us of God himself. In Hebrews 1.3 it says that he is the express image of of God's person. There the word means he's the impression that is left as when you take a stamp and you put it on hot wax. And you have the impression of the stamp. Jesus Christ is this. 
God has impressed himself in human flesh and blood, in sinless humanity, so that we can see what he's like. He came into creation that we might know God. So that Jesus was able to say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. When we understand what is being said in these verses, it should give us a wiser appreciation for everything, since everything is Jesus Christ's. Everything that has been made is for our benefit and our enjoyment, for our use. And I'm not a wacko environmentalist. We have a lot of those in our world today. But I do believe in being a biblical environmentalist, in that we recognize that we human beings are stewards of a creation that is not ours, it is Christ's. And therefore we ought not to exploit it, we ought not to waste it, we ought not to abuse creation or created creatures. They belong to someone else, they belong to the Creator. We ought to be rather protectors and conservers and wise users of all of these things that God has richly given us to enjoy in the world. When we understand what is being said in this text, it should give us a wiser appreciation for everything. Secondly, it should lead us into richer adoration of the one whom it reveals. His wisdom, His power, His goodness. Joseph Addison was another Anglican clergyman who lived 275 years ago. And uh, he left behind some poems, one of which we sometimes sing. The poem goes like this. The spacious firmament on high, with all the blue, ethereal sky, and spangled heavens, a shining frame, their great original proclaim. The unwearied sun from day to day does his creator's power display, and publishes to every land the work of an almighty hand. Soon as the evening shades prevail, the moon takes up the wondrous tale, and nightly to the listening earth repeats the story of her birth, while all the stars that round her burn and all the planets in their turn confirm the tidings as they roll and spread the truth from pole to pole. What though in solemn silence all move round the dark terrestrial ball. And what though no real voice nor sound amid their radiant orbs be found? In reason's ear, they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice forever singing as they shine. The hand that made us is divine. Do you see how the heavens declare the glory of Jesus Christ to the whole world? This last week, as you could tell from my illustration earlier, 
perhaps I was uh, privileged to be part of a class that went to the planetarium in Minneapolis. Have you ever been there? Uh, if not, you need to go and take your kids. The professor from Lakewood Community College taught his lesson well. He was explaining to the students facts about how the earth and the sun and the moon relate to each other and how to measure in space, etc. What he didn't know as he was lecturing was that I was worshiping. Because as that machine projected the stars and the planets and the moon and the sun on that ceiling in the planetarium, my heart leaped with praise to God. And all of these things say the hand that made us is divine. We ought to be jealous for the glory of Christ. And when we hear people talk about the earth being billions of years old, and we hear people talk about the, um, the facts of so-called of evolution and how things developed, this last week somebody made the statement in my presence and the presence of other staff members that the human heart evolved over a million-year period. Wow! How did all those people live until that million years was up? I just wonder. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the macrocosm. He is Lord of the microcosm. We have to be jealous for the glory of our Creator because it's His. And finally, this should all lead us to a deeper submission to the one who upholds and directs it. Because he came that we might know him. Surely the wisdom and the power by which he created all of this, he's able to use to direct your life and mine. And in the midst of the questions that we may have now, or the struggles, or the hurts, the pain, we have a shepherd of the stars who's the shepherd of our souls. And yet we get angry and we disbelieve and we doubt. Can we not today say to the Lord Jesus, you created all of this, Lord. You created me. And I give you my life. I submit it to you. If you can guide those stars and planets in their courses, guide my little life. And he will. He will. Let's pray. What are you passing through that's creating turmoil in your life? What are the questions, the doubts that are nagging at you this morning, undermining your faith. Can you not come to the Lord Jesus Christ today, this great, majestic Creator, and submit your life to Him? I hope you will. Lord Jesus, in the quietness of these closing moments, we examine our hearts. Forgive us. Forgive us 
for so often responding in ways that reveal our fallenness and our sinfulness. And we yield ourselves to you. We submit our lives to you. Be the Lord. We are your servants. We are your creatures. We give you praise. We give you thanks. And I wonder if, just before I close, you would want to say that to the Lord and indicate it by your uplifted hand and say, this morning, I do submit myself afresh to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to put it up and down and say, by doing that, yes, today there's a new commitment. Yes, God bless you. All of you doing that. God sees your hand. He knows your heart. Anyone else? Yes, God bless you. Father, I pray for these, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that as they have a new beginning today with Jesus Christ being the Lord of it all, that you will show them step by step what your design and purpose is. For surely you have a design for their confusing lives as they view them as much as you do for the ordered universe that we behold with such wonder. We trust you with design in our messes. We trust you to bring good out of what has been difficult and painful for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being all that you are to us. Let's stand together. The little chorus says, In his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Let that be the song in our hearts as we go this morning. Father, I pray that if our timing and our plans are not realized, that we will trust you with a greater plan and design and timing and know that behind all of the little issues that nag away at us, you are there working in a grand scale that we cannot possibly appreciate. May our eyes be focused upon you and our hearts be bowed before you, Lord, as we go and enter a new week. This we pray in your blessed and wondrous and majestic name. Amen.